Have you ever read the Bible as a dietary manual? For some of you, that might sound strange. For others, well, you might know exactly what I'm talking about. Christian dieting books abound that promise spiritual freedom if only you eat according to strict guidelines laid out in various parts of scripture. There are some murky implications behind these Christian eating plans. Today, we're going to take a look at the underlying assumptions behind most biblical diet books. And then consider a different theological approach. Welcome to Kitchen Meditations, a weekly podcast from Edible Theology where we examine the ways God meets us in the kitchen and at the table. I'm your host, Kendall Vanderslice. If you're hungry for a taste of God's hope and healing in the mundane tasks of your everyday life, then you've come to the right place. May these meditations bring you a bit of grounding as you prepare to eat today and every day. I'd like us to start with a little spiritual mise en place, a prayer to orient ourselves before we begin. Mise en place is the process of preparing yourself and your workspace for the dishes you're about to make. It involves measuring your ingredients and reading your recipe all the way through so that you can find delight in the process of cooking and the eating afterwards, too. I like to think of it as a time to prepare my own mind and body as well asking God to be present with me as I cook or as I bake. Our spiritual mise en place today is drawn from the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. Slow your breathing. And now as you breathe, repeat with me. Inhale. Blessed are those who hunger. And as you exhale, for they will be filled. For a good chunk of my childhood, my family ate according to a program called the Hallelujah Diet. The Hallelujah Diet is drawn from the book of Genesis, encouraging people to eat like Adam and Eve would have in the Garden of Eden, primarily raw produce, nuts, and seeds. When we get back to the garden, the diet's website boasts, we get back to the health we were created to have. Every morning, I scrubbed a five-pound bag of carrots that mom would juice, along with a couple of apples. My siblings and I all chugged our glass of carrot juice with noses plugged before moving on to our second drink of the day, a beverage called barley green, a powdery substance that we reconstituted with cranberry juice, then laced with flaxseed oil for an extra nutrient boost. We'd keep plugging our noses until we'd made it past the oil that sat on top, after which the cranberry finish was not too bad. For lunch each day, we had a salad, or a cashew butter sandwich with shredded carrots hidden inside. For dinner, we ate more salad with steamed vegetables and some kind of potatoes or brown rice. The Hallelujah Diet books made their way into the households of many evangelical families in the 90s, especially among the homeschooling crowd. The book promised health, and with it, spiritual fulfillment. 
if only we ate the way God planned from the beginning of creation. In recent years, I've met several other children of the 90s who grew up eating this way. Each of us were affected by the diet differently. Some still stick pretty closely to the habit of eating minimal meat, lots of vegetables, and snacks of raw nuts and seeds. Others have skewed the opposite way. I personally cannot get myself to enjoy almond butter to this day. Even though it's all the rage, I can't get over the time when these alternative ingredients made me the weird kid in school. Apart from the strange looks of classmates and the annoyance of scrubbing so many carrots as a child, I can't really complain too much about growing up on high-quality fruits and vegetables or on bread made with whole grains that we ground into flour at home. It was a huge privilege to be raised in a home with parents who were able and willing to sacrifice precious money and time for our health. And I'm certain that the presence of that flour mill on the counter sparked my earliest love for bread making, which has shaped my entire life. But there is a disturbing implication in the language of these Christian dieting books. The idea that our spiritual well-being is tied to our dietary control. The language of cleanliness and health that we discussed in the past two episodes conflates morality with shifting standards of food. But these Christian dieting books raise the stakes even higher. Our relationship with God is on the line. The Hallelujah Diet is hardly the only Christian dietary plan out there. I spent an afternoon recently wandering the stacks of a bookstore, flipping through the options still available for sale. Books like The Daniel Fast, The Way Down Diet, and Made to Crave. I asked folks on Instagram about their experience with these books and heard some pretty heartbreaking stories of the impact. My fixation with food only got worse, one woman responded, because the spiritual stakes were so high. I know most diets have good foods and bad foods, another said, but the Christian backdrop made me feel like I was sinning whenever I would cheat. Everyone around me was doing the diet, which added to the mentality that godly women don't eat naughty foods. Each of these diets have a slightly different spin on their approach to biblical eating. The Daniel Fast recommends three weeks of restrictive eating following the diet of Daniel while in the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar. The Weigh Down Method encourages listening to the body, praying to discern whether the desire to eat is born of hunger or merely a want for pleasure. In Made to Crave, readers are taught that our cravings for food ought to be redirected into a craving for God. The desire for boxed brownies or potato chips, the book claims, directs us away from spiritual things. A program called First Place promotes the message that God wants you to get control over your eating. It's a spiritual battle, not a physical one, the website claims, encouraging you to put God first in your life, not material things. Now, before I break down why these messages are so harmful, I want to start by saying that I actually agree with the basic premise from which each of these books and diets begins. Each author understands fundamentally that our eating informs our relationship with God. Food matters, and something about food hurts. These writers also recognize that our eating is shaped through community. 
which is why so many of them recommend that churches go through these diets together. These two opening premises are really important. They give the diets a lot of power because these premises are true. Where the diets go wrong, though, is in seeing the power of food to shape us as a power in competition with God. Each book and diet website uses the word freedom to bolster its claim, offering freedom from craving, freedom from weight gain, freedom from sickness, freedom from pain. God wants that freedom for you, they promise. But like Eve, your hunger just keeps getting in the way. Get back to the garden and back to the health you were created to have. My friends, this is a false theological claim. It's compelling, but it isn't true. The fact is creation aches. Our bodies are broken. They get sick. They have allergies. Humans ache as they toil in the fields, sowing and reaping and gathering food for the rest of us to eat. They sweat over stoves, cooking for the children who are screaming in hunger yet again. They break over conveyor belts, over long, monotonous hours, processing and packaging in dangerous conditions so that food can be affordable and convenient. Since Genesis 3, our eating has been inseparable from the brokenness of creation. But the story of Scripture is not a story of going back to the garden to heal. It's not a story of achieving spiritual wholeness by divorcing ourselves from our bodies, our desires, or our need. The story of Scripture is a story of God's entrance into this brokenness, of God taking on human flesh, God experiencing hunger, God experiencing joy, and God pointing us ahead to a day when this hunger and pain and brokenness will be no more. God draws near to us and heals us by leaning into the combination of pain and delight, of living as a human, body and all. When Jesus said that man doesn't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Jesus was not putting the desire for food and the desire for God in competition with one another. He was not demanding we redirect our desire for food into some more holy spiritual longing. Jesus was synthesizing these two deep needs. Jesus himself is both the bread of life and the word who was with God in the beginning. The word that proceeds from the mouth of God is the bread that comes into our own mouths. It lingers on our tongues as we chew and swallow. It settles in our belly, its particles becoming a part of us. We know God through this tactile form of bread, not in spite of it. We taste God and sense God's nearness in the sacredness of communion, but also the mundane meals that we eat every day. In one small bite of forbidden fruit, yes, death entered the world. But through his death, Jesus reclaimed our eating as a sign of new life. Jesus doesn't offer us a path back to the garden. 
He doesn't show us that if we just eat right and live right, we'll have the health and happiness we were created for. Jesus' life and death point us ahead to the new creation that is to come. A new Jerusalem marked by a tree whose leaves heal nations and that bears its fruit all year round. A city even more magnificent than the garden where it all began. A feast, a celebration, a supper of the Lamb. We're given a meal of bread and wine to sustain us as we hunger for that day. A feast to remember that every time we eat, Christ dines with us too. We will hunger. Our bodies will hurt. They will bear the scars of babies birthed, of hours worked, of ice cream eaten for no other reason than a bit of delight after a long day. Creation groans in need of God's restoration. But the hunger we feel is also good. It reminds us that through our eating, we're drawn into relationship with one another and with God. And God desires that even in the midst of pain, we find pleasure in our eating too. Blessed are those who hunger, for they will be filled. We'll get to our kitchen tip in just a moment, but I want to take a quick break to tell you more about Edible Theology. Edible Theology is an educational media project helping you connect the communion table to the kitchen table. We offer Bible studies, bread baking workshops, and a digital community to help you meet God through food. If you are curious to learn more about what it means that Jesus is both the Word and the bread, then you'll love Bake with the Bible, our six-week study on bread and the Gospels. Each week includes a family-friendly recipe and activity discussion questions, and reading recommendations, as well as scriptural and cultural historical lessons. Your whole family will enjoy journeying through the gospel through the lens of bread. This program starts with the story of Jesus' temptation in the desert, and it culminates with Jesus offering bread to his disciples on the path to Emmaus. With that structure, it makes the perfect study for Lent. When you purchase your copy, we'll even throw in an Ash Wednesday mini lesson to get you started. Buy your copy today at www.edibletheology.com slash Bible study. Again, that's edibletheology.com slash Bible study. Our kitchen tip today is for those who long for the freedom to delight in God's gift of food, but who cannot escape the deeply ingrained belief that your goodness is tied to your ability to eat a certain way. Breaking away from this relationship to your body and to food is hard. But like the Christian diet advocates, I believe with all my heart that God wants you to be free. Only that freedom is so much more than the stringent eating regimen they offer. It's a freedom to enjoy the body and the world God has created and to learn what it means to take care of yourself, your family, and the world around you out of that place of genuine joy. Now, I've said before that I am not a nutritionist nor a doctor. I want to reiterate that here, especially for those with a history of disordered eating. Learning to trust your body's hunger cues is a long, slow process. A small kitchen tip here won't undo years of learning to distrust what your body has to say. But I hope that this exercise might provide a little start. 
Next time you cook a recipe, any recipe in your repertoire that feels safe, I want you to consider each ingredient as you pull it from your shelves. Smell the spices. Feel the texture of the produce in your hands. Listen to the pop of the jar as you twist the lid or the snap of the can as you peel back the tab. For each ingredient, think of one reason you are grateful for that item. Does it taste good? Does it remind you of home? Does it make your cooking easier so that you can spend more time at the table with the friend you invited over to eat? Thank God for the way fresh parsley adds depth to a dish or the way salt and acid work together to elevate each flavor. I can't promise this exercise will help you feel more control over the foods you choose to eat, but I do hope that it helps you eat with joy and a bit more freedom. And now, to close. A prayer for the days when the needs of your body feel like more than you can handle. Embodied God, I'm so acquainted with the brokenness of my body and of your beloved creation. My belly aches with a bite of wheat, even as I crave your bread. My throat closes with a whiff of nuts, keeping me from dining with my friends. I question if this sweet will upend all my work of trying to conceive again this month. Each muscle aches from planting seeds and praying that the rain will come. Draw near to me through your gift of food on the days my hunger seeks to destroy. Each bite lingering on my tongue, a sign of your promises to come. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Kitchen Meditations, the final episode of season one. We're taking a few weeks off from the podcast to rest and plan for the next season. If there's a topic you'd like to see us cover, send us an email through our website, edibletheology.com. And while you're there, sign up for our weekly newsletter so you know when our next episode goes live. If you want to discuss this episode with other food-loving folks, then join our free community at community.edibletheology.com. We post discussion questions every Monday to keep the conversation going. A huge thank you to my assistant, Hannah Hargrave, and to our producers, Nick Thompson and Richard Clark at Area Code, who made this podcast possible. We would love it if you could rate and review us on iTunes and Spotify. Then share this episode with your friends. Your help ensures that others discover this podcast, too.